I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Severe mental illness remains mysterious and hard to treat. A leading psychiatrist offers new insights on prevention. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Whenever there's a mass shooting, politicians blame the tragedy on mental illness. Providing resources for treatment and support, much less prevention, is rarely a priority. What can be done to help people with schizophrenia? Our guest today is one of the country's foremost experts in this field. Closing state mental facilities was supposed to improve conditions for people with severe mental illness. Too often, it left them homeless. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, learning about the malady of the mind. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the flu is back. Actually, it never quite went away, but it did have a bit of a dip over the last few weeks. The CDC is now alert to an uptick in positive flu tests with influenza A dominating. People with flu have been showing up in doctors' offices since November, and currently, school-age kids are suffering more than other age groups. On the other hand, COVID cases appear to be letting up slightly. Wastewater tracking shows that virus levels are high, but that's slightly better than it was previously. The JN.1 variant now completely dominates, accounting for 93% of sequenced samples. When it comes to influenza, H3N2 is increasing. This strain is often more challenging than the H1N1 that was predominant earlier in the season. The CDC anticipates that oral antiviral medicine will continue to work against common strains of flu virus. A hard-to-treat fungal infection called Candida auris is spreading around the country. This fungus has developed resistance to most antifungal medicine. Once it gets a foothold in a healthcare facility, it's very difficult to eradicate. The fungus can infect a range of tissues, including the ear, the urinary tract, the skin, and the blood. People with weakened immune systems are especially vulnerable. Symptoms include fever, chills, shortness of breath, cough, muscle aches, fatigue, and headache. If that sounds a lot like influenza, you're not wrong. Getting an accurate diagnosis can be challenging. There's good news when it comes to a mysterious illness that's been affecting children for about a decade. Acute flaccid myelitis has polio-like symptoms, but it's not caused by the polio virus. Many children experience a respiratory tract infection caused by a specific enterovirus. Most recover, but some are left with paralyzed limbs. Epidemiologists have noted that cases seem to increase during the winter every other year. It was expected to surge in 2022, but cases remained low. As of this week, the CDC reports 15 confirmed cases in 2023. That's far below the peaks that were seen in 2014, 2016, and 2018. Terzepatide has garnered a lot of attention under its brand names, Monjaro for diabetes and Zepbound for weight loss. A new clinical trial shows that the drug also lowers blood pressure. 
In this study, 600 heavy people took the drug for nine months. They did not have diabetes. The study was originally designed by Eli Lilly to investigate the ability of the medication to help people lose weight. Researchers already knew that people taking terzepatide have lower blood pressure in the doctor's office. This trial took it even further and looked at continuous 24-hour blood pressure measurement. People on the drug had average systolic blood pressure measurements. People on the drug had average systolic blood pressures 7 to 10 points lower than those on placebo. Several studies suggest that older people who want to ward off cognitive decline in their later years need to keep moving. A new analysis of 104 controlled trials confirms that continued physical activity can help prevent cognitive impairment, but the effect is modest. More than 300,000 people participated in these studies, which showed that global cognition, episodic memory, and verbal fluency were better in active individuals. Most of these studies were of moderate or low quality. Higher quality physical activity measurements and higher follow-up rates were linked to better results on cognitive tests. For this outcome, more is better, at least up to about 16 hours of exercise a week. Everyone's focused on football because of the Super Bowl, but there's growing concern that tackle football may affect the structure and function of adolescent brains. A study tracked over 200 young football players and 70 young men who served as controls. The average age, 16. The authors employed advanced neuroimaging techniques that revealed cortical thinning in the frontal and occipital regions in the football players, but not the controls. The brain areas affected are important for mental health. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Mental illness is one of the great mysteries of medicine. Although names and theories have changed, schizophrenia has been part of the human condition for all of history. Because this condition remains so mysterious, people with schizophrenia have been met with fear, stigma, isolation, and mistreatment for centuries. That's as true today as it was in Joan of Arc's time. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions about mental illness. Many people believe that psychosis is untreatable and that the prognosis is bleak. But does it have to be that way? Are there effective therapies that can help people with schizophrenia lead satisfying lives? Could our mental health resources be utilized more effectively? To learn more about this malady of the mind, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman. He's professor of psychiatry and holds the Constance and Stephen Lieber Chair at Columbia University in the Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. His research has advanced the treatment of mental illness and led to the therapeutic strategy of early detection and intervention for schizophrenia. While on the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he led the Cady study, the largest study ever funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, comparing the effectiveness of drug treatments for schizophrenia. 
His research has been published in over 800 scientific articles and 20 books, including Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, and his most recent, Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman. Hello. It's good to be back with you, Terry and and Joe, uh, and to renew our acquaintance, uh, even though I'm now in New York as opposed to in the southern part of heaven, the UNC, with you all. Well, thank you. We're so happy to have you with us today. Dr. Lieberman, schizophrenia, it's been part of the human condition from, from the very beginning of recorded history. It's been associated with fear and stigma, isolation, mistreatment, myths and misunderstandings, I guess the best place to start is what is schizophrenia, or perhaps I should say, what are the schizophrenias, as my old mentor, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, would say? Give us a sense of what we're talking about today. Well, schizophrenia, if you want to know the truth, is uh, kind of demystifying the popular notions that have been promulgated over throughout history and by the media and uh, by uh, the entertainment industry. It's a brain disorder. It uh, tends to occur equally in men and women. It has its onset in adolescence to young adulthood, 15 to 25 years. It is pretty much consistent in its population frequency around the world and in different ethnicities and cultures. Uh, and is characterized by a set of symptoms which reflect disturbances in thinking, delusions, false beliefs, disorganization, uh, false perceptions, uh, feeling paranoid, uh, having hallucinations, meaning hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there, and uh, having a, a lack of logic and normal train of thought. The condition is treatable, but if it's not maintained in some controlled maintenance treatment fashion, it will recur. And uh, over time, if it recurs too many times or it goes on too long, it produces a deterioration of a person's intellectual capacity, hence the original name that was given to it in the 19th century by M.L. Kreplin of dementia precox. We, we know senile dementia. We know Alzheimer's dementia. This one's dementia precox, meaning occurring not late in life, but early in life. Now, Dr. Lieberman, you mentioned that happens around the world, that the rate of schizophrenia, uh, should we say, is, is similar in many different societies. How many people are affected here in the U.S.? Well, the population frequency or, or lifetime prevalence is 1%. So, uh, if we have 300 million people and 300 plus million people, it's 3 million people. Uh, however, the rate of schizophrenia, which over time, at least as best we can tell, has been fairly stable, uh, is actually rising. And uh, one of the reasons why that's the case, or a prime reason that that's the case, is the um, ubiquity, courtesy of decriminalization, legalization, commercialization, of recreational substances, uh, particularly cannabis, uh, ketamine, and possibly soon to be psychedelics as well. So what this does, 
since schizophrenia is caused by a group of genes that confer susceptibility to an individual to develop it under uh, certain environmental conditions that are stressful or, uh, in other ways, provoke the onset of the illness. Pharmacologic substances can trigger it also, and among those that are the most likely to are EHC and these more potent strains of commercialized cannabis uh, stimulants like Adderall, uh, ketamine, um, and also ketamine. You know, it fascinates me as a pharmacologist that there are medications that can induce hallucinations. And, you know, we, we think about magic mushrooms, for example, or psilocybin or LSD, and even some antibiotics like the fluoroquinolones, uh, Cipro and Leviquin. And th there was a time, in fact, in the laboratory that I worked at, at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute, they thought, oh, well, if LSD and these hallucinogens can induce, induce some kind of hallucination, maybe there's a similarity. We no longer believe that, do we? Well, yes, we don't believe it uh, anymore, but we learned it the hard way. We had to disprove it because it was a perfectly valid hypothesis and theory. Um, the idea of an endogenous psychotogen, um, in fact, and, and you're showing uh, you know, your, your uh, prior lived experience in neuropsychopharmacology and uh, uh, laboratory experience, I'm going to disclose about my experience, lived experience. <laughs> Uh, with uh, uh, being a child of the 60s with psychedelics. Uh, so being a good Jewish boy, I guess I was always destined to be a doctor, but not necessarily a psychiatrist. But when I was in college in the late 60s, um, counterculture used recreational substances. And uh, when I experimented with uh, hallucinogens or psychedelics, I was astonished at 50 micrograms of a tiny not my tiny concentration of a substance could so profoundly change your state of mind. And that gave rise to the idea there may be an inboard error metabolism that was producing a psychotogen uh, that was causing it. Uh, but the experiment uh, that disproved, and some of your mentors were among the kind of proponents of this theory, but what disproved this finally was a study that was done at the NIH where they uh, reasoned that if there is an endogenous psychology that's being produced apparently, um, let's subject the people, the patients, to hemodialysis and try and filter it out. And uh, they did so in a double-blind study, sham hemodialysis and real hemodialysis, and did it no effect. So that was disproven. But it's given way to essentially an understanding of the illness uh, having a pathophysiology, meaning pathology that causes the expression of the symptoms, to be neurochemical in basis. That's not the etiology cause, but that's the pathology that causes the illness to express itself symptomatically. So it wasn't as simple as we originally thought, but uh, it pointed in the right direction than something neurochemical. Dr. Lieberman, in your new book, Malady of the Mind, you describe a number of myths and misconceptions that people have about schizophrenia. And maybe in the next couple of minutes, we could just mention a few and shoot them down. 
gladly, gladly, because I, you know, schizophrenia is really the um, uh, day plus ultra or flagship or poster child for mental illness. Uh, if you talk to the lay person and you ask them what is insanity, what they describe is somebody who has schizophrenia, or you see a person on the street shouting at no one in particular, standing barefoot in the freezing cold, um, has schizophrenia, or you see uh, a movie like Shutter Island or or something uh, that they depict some serial killer or some individual that's scary and menacing, schizophrenia. So it's really what the public has in mind and fears most uh, about it. Um, but at the same time, it gets trivialized. How? Uh, if somebody has uh, what they call a split personality, they act differently, they're erratic in their behavior, you say, oh, that's schizophrenic. Or if somebody holds two ideas that are contradictory in mind simultaneously, oh, that's the weather schizophrenic because it's changing from one day to the next. Or my favorite uh, illusion is um, the, the Flat Earth Society. We have chapters in about uh, we have chapters of it around the all around the globe. So, and then the worst one I think is that um, schizophrenia is not an illness; it's an exalted state of creativity where individuals just think differently than the rest of us. They don't uh, adhere to convention and the procrustean ways of viewing the world and society and reality. Um, these are all wrong. Uh, it's a brain disease which disrupts the highest mentative functions uh, of uh, homo sapiens. Um, that's why it's partly why it's been hard, so hard to figure out because it's it's basically affecting the parts of the brain that are the most highly evolved and are uniquely human. You're listening to Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, professor and Constance and Stephen Lieber chair in psychiatry at Columbia University's Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Lieberman's most recent book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention. After the break, learn how schizophrenia is treated today. Is the prognosis still as bleak as before? What are the barriers to getting a diagnosis in a timely fashion? Why is early diagnosis and treatment so important? You'll hear how innovative, coordinated treatment can make a difference. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. February isn't just about Valentine's Day. It's also American Heart Health Month, a great reminder to show your heart some love with a heart-healthy habit, such as adding clinically proven cocoa flavanols to your daily regimen. If you're looking for a supplement to fit your heart health needs, try Cocovia. All Cocovia supplements contain the most proven bioactive flavanol, CocoPro, backed by more than 20 years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and help retain healthy blood pressure and cholesterol levels. Your heart will thank you. Celebrate American 
Heart Month with 20% off all Cocovia Cardio Health products from February 8th through February 21st using the discount code HEARTPOD at Cocovia.com. That's HEARTPOD at Cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, February is American Heart Month, so why not take care of your heart health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for cardiovascular support? How does Cocovia fit into your heart-healthy routine to age well for the years ahead? More information at cocovia.com. There was a time when people with severe mental illness were placed in facilities designed to keep them safe and separated from society. Deinstitutionalization from state mental hospitals began in the 1950s with good motives, but too often resulted in homelessness and lack of services. To find out what went wrong, we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, Professor and Constance and Stephen Lieber Chair in Psychiatry at Columbia University's Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Lieberman's latest book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia, and the Path to Prevention. Dr. Lieberman, I'd like to share a somewhat personal story. It it actually involved my mother. Um, my mother was abandoned by her biological mother, and her father remarried, and her stepmother was pretty clearly schizophrenic. She tied little bows of ribbon all around the house to protect her and the family from some strange force, some alien force, maybe even from outer space. This would have been in the very early 20th century. She locked my mother occasionally in the attic. She cut up her clothes. She made my mother's life a living hell. She would play the piano for sometimes days on end without stopping, without making food for the family. And and she ended up in a mental institution in Pennsylvania. I think a lot of people believe that schizophrenia, psychosis, mental illness, whatever we want to call it, can't be treated successfully, that, that it has a very bleak prognosis. That certainly was true of her stepmother. But what about today? If we fast forward to now the 21st century, is it still a bleak prognosis? It is absolutely not. And that is really the central point of uh, uh, my book that uh, you've been alluding to, which is that there are treatments, they do work, and they can enable people who are affected to lean reasonably, if not completely normal lives, if they're administered in a timely and appropriate fashion. The problem was that, let me put it in a historical context, Joe. Um, Up until the middle of the 20th century, 
even though we'd identified it as a disease. Well, I mean, the history was, and this alludes really to Susan Sontag's great book on illness's metaphor, where she talks about how a society which lacks knowledge about something, in this case a disease, refracts it through its own culture. And in the ancient times, the culture was it must be supernatural affliction of either sainthood or demonizing. In the Middle Ages, it was religious deviance, heresy, moral deviance. Uh, Post-Enlightenment, these were considered natural conditions, but nobody had any idea what the basis of it was, much less how to treat it. It was only in the middle part of the 20th century, the 1950s onward, that we had any type of scientific inkling as to um, uh, what, what caused schizophrenia. And unfortunately, the thinking up until then had to do with preposterous notions like uh, the psychoanalytic view of the schizophrenogenic mother with the cause of somebody becoming schizophrenic or the orgo theory of schizophrenia. Um, So these were preposterous theories and it was replaced initially by genetic evidence which was epidemiologic genetic evidence, which was very consistent and conclusive that if you had a person with schizophrenia in your family, then the other members in the family had a higher rate of schizophrenia than in the general population if there's no one. So this led to the notion of doomed from the womb uh, and that there was an inexorable decline that would occur and nothing could be done to really halt that. But over time, and particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, studies were done which disproved that, that if you identified people who were developing the symptoms of the illness, again, in adolescence or young adulthood, you treated them promptly and properly, they recovered. They had a symptomatic remission. However, uh, if you then discontinued the medication as uh, many people of those ages want to do because they think it's why one and done problem. Uh, they had recurrence, and as they had multiple recurrences, like little mini brain insults, at some point they didn't recover as well as they did initially. So the answer to your question is that there are treatments; they're just not administered and made available to people. Well, Dr. Lieberman, it sounds as though the very first step is a timely diagnosis. And can you tell us how that diagnosis is made and what are the barriers to people getting an appropriate diagnosis at the right time? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And that gets back to um, Joe's experience with Carl Pfeiffer and the schizophrenia. Um, I sort of take umbrage at the notion of the schizophrenia because uh, to say that it's a heterogeneous, there's different forms of it, it's a little bit of a cop-out when your data don't match up what you expect to happen. I call it really a, a, a process of peeling the onion. Now, what I mean by that is every illness that's in the ICD uh, and known to medicine uh, was identified and began to be named and characterized in the same way. In ancient times, epilepsy was falling sickness. Congestive heart failure was dropsy because the fluid at, uh, uh, wasn't being pumped 
to your veins was accumulating in your ankles. Um, diabetes was determined as to mellitus or insipidus if it was water or tasted watery. The urine tasted watery or was sweet. Uh, but then we got an EKG, we got a laboratory test to measure hemoglobin A1C, we got an EEG to measure seizures. With mental illnesses and schizophrenia in particular, we're still at that descriptive phenomenologic level. Um, and as a result of that, there is over-inclusion of what I call genocopies, phenocopies, or facsimiles. So diagnosis, particularly at the beginning of the illness, first episode, is a critical thing in order to rule out these form fruits, these things that look like it, but aren't schizophrenia. So I can go through an algorithm for you, but uh, I don't want to do that if it's prolonging you know, the answer to this question. Well, I, I think one of the important elements in your book discusses how essential it is to get an early diagnosis and early treatment because it can reduce the damage to the brain and speed recovery. I wonder if you could reinforce why that's so important. Well, that's that's really a key element. And actually, it, it means that the fact that there's a window in time when the illness occurs should make it uh, a prime target for preventive intervention that we're not adequately taking advantage of. So uh, pre-pubertal, so schizophrenia in its inherent, it's in, uh, it's in its uh, original form is a polygenic brain disorder, meaning it's not single gene, it's multiple genes conferring susceptibility for certain neural circuits to go off and misfunction, malfunction, and certain points in life under certain environmental pressures. Um, so you're born with a liability, but it doesn't mean you're definitely going to have it. And it rarely occurs before puberty. Childhood onset schizophrenia is rare. It occurs after puberty for various maturational uh, reasons. And when it does, it begins in an iterative or gradual fashion. Now, what complicates the identification of this as pathologic and would warrant or justify treatment is that it's occurring when, during adolescence, when uh, young people are going through changes, not just secondary sex characteristics, but seeking identity, who they are, trying to establish independence, uh, going out into a world where they have to assume greater responsibility, going to college where they're separated from home at the first time. And so uh, the initial prodromal or early warning signs are often nonspecific. Uh, irritability, change in interests, change in their sleep habits. So those are difficult to pin diagnosis on. But when there is an index of suspicion that warrants the introduction of treatment, it's important to introduce that as soon as possible because what we've learned is that the brain cannot withstand a persistent state of neurochemical dysregulation that's causing psychosis or repeated episodes of it without incurring some damage. Tell us a bit about treatment, if you would, please. And especially about your mantra about innovative and, and I want to emphasize this word, coordinated, coordinated treatment. 
Well, the first effective treatment in the history of humankind for schizophrenia was were, were antipsychotic medications, medications that acted on the dopamine system to block overstimulation of these receptors. Uh, and that led in the 1950s to a policy of deinstitutionalization, which opened the doors to state mental hospitals, which would become, unfortunately, snake pits. It may have been well-intended, but it overestimated the therapeutic uh, uh, effects of medication. And what was learned painfully through understanding the limitations of deinstitutionalization was that what was required is a approach that can be called disease management um, or in the way of supply schizophrenia coordinated specialty care, meaning that when you have a stroke or you break a leg, you need not just to have the angioplasty, I mean, the, the uh, lysing of the blood clot or the repairing of the broken bone, but then you need to see a physical therapist and you need to gradually work your way back. Um, there needs to be a coordinated approach with people with schizophrenia because having a psychotic episode, which is all mark of the onset of the illness, is like having a brain attack. And medication will suppress the psychotic symptoms, the disturbances in your thinking and your perception, but your brain still cognitively is not back in shape to get in the game, to go back to college, to resume a job, to resume your social life. Um, and so there needs to be coordinated services such as um, having somebody who's like a case manager that helps you sort of navigate when do you make an appointment to see a doctor, when can you sort of resume going back to school. Uh, there's services called supported education and supported employment, meaning somebody who's your advocate in being able to help your educational program or your vocational activity um, understand you're coming back after having had some infirmity and giving you this type of understanding so that you're able to, uh, uh, until you regain all of your cognitive capacities, you may be missing a couple of days or performing sort of suboptimally. Also, there's a tendency for people to use recreational substances to self-medicate. So there needs to be that monitoring. Now, Dr. Dr. Lieberman, I want to interrupt you, if I may, because you referred briefly to deinstitutionalization, and I, I really would like to go back and touch on that for a minute, because you've just talked about all the support that someone who is experiencing mental illness needs in order to be able to function. Well, Literally, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were let out of mental institutions, and many of them ended up on the street. And they're still not those very people from the 70s and 80s, but there are literally hundreds of thousands of people on the street today with mental illness or in prisons. So that whole experiment of deinstitutionalization was a massive failure. Absolutely. And um, the great late Senator Daniel Patrick Boynihan called it out in a series of hearings that he held on this, uh, um, of how it, it was really a misguided policy that, you know, can, you know dress itself up as uh, well-intended, but there's no question about it. The, the zenith of inpatients in state mental hospitals in 1955 was uh, 550,000 people. It's now less than 30,000 people nationwide. 
Um, and it was the displacement from there to largely, as you point out, the streets, the prisons, and nursing homes. Uh, and the idea is you can let these people out. They should be fine. Their family should come to support them. It never happened, and uh, we're paying the price of it still. It, it seems as though the plan was that there would be something in place, community centers or something else, that would provide the support that people need. And, of course, that would have required spending. It would have required planning. And none of that happened at all. Well, you, you just, Terry, you hit on the, uh, you know, the sleight of hand that occurred at state legislative levels, uh, which is that um, originally there was a uh, estimation of the number of community mental health centers that needed to be established to sort of pick up the slack and support people after they were discharged from the hospital. And as Senator Moynihan points out, um, it was a little more than a third of those that were in intended to be established that were actually uh, established and resourced. So this was grossly underfunded, underestablished, and God knows where the money that uh, was supposed to be used for that went, and it still hasn't shown up for that matter. Because, and and this is really probably the unkindest and uh, most uh, uh, cruel realization of all. If one really drills down to this, um, on one hand, you could say that there was a scientific, I would say, um, uh, delay in coming to reckon with schizophrenia was and the development of treatments, that pharmacologic treatments. On the other hand, the policy and the legislative uh, side of things was made things much worse and continues to be the laggard here because treatments do exist. They could be applied. They would be game-changing, but they simply don't exist. You can be the wealthiest, the best connected, the smartest family and if you have a kid that's struck with this, you have to go find it yourself and piece it together because it doesn't exist in its fully form. It's like if you have breast cancer and you go to your doctor and they say you need a lumpectomy and you need radiation and chemotherapy, but we can only do the lumpectomy. That's the situation for someone with schizophrenia. You're listening to Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, Professor and Constance and Stephen Lieber Chair in Psychiatry at Columbia University's Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. His most recent book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention. After the break, we'll talk about the intersection of mental illness and violence. Although politicians may think otherwise, the mentally ill are more likely to be victims than perpetrators of violence. Dr. Lieberman will share his five-pronged approach to treatment. We'll also talk about the tricky task of prevention. How can we create safe places for those with mental illness? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Urea Skin Relief from The People's Pharmacy. It took us many years to get the formula just right. Now, we're delighted to be able to offer this intensive skin therapy with 20% urea. Urea Skin Relief Cream is not your average moisturizer. 
formulated with a unique blend of urea and plant-based ingredients, it's specifically designed to deeply hydrate and soothe even the most stubborn dry skin. Whether you're battling the effects of harsh weather or you have dry, rough skin because of frequent hand washing, this cream works wonders. Urea is a powerhouse ingredient. Not only does it act as a humectant, drawing moisture into the skin, but it also beefs up the skin's barrier function. We're just as proud of what you won't find in our Urea Skin Relief Cream, no parabens or phthalates. Creating a cream for dry skin that's free of these common endocrine-disrupting preservatives and plasticizers was what motivated us to make this product. People's Pharmacy podcast listeners can get an exclusive discount on the People's Pharmacy Urea Skin Relief Tubes. Whether you want the handy 2-ounce size or the 6-ounce economy size, you'll find this new product in the body care section of the store at peoplespharmacy.com. Just put the code PP20, that's uppercase PP20, into the discount code box when you check out to get 20% off your purchase. That's PP20 at www.peoplespharmacy.com. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. February is American Heart Month, so why not take care of your heart health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for cardiovascular support? How does Cocovia fit into your heart-healthy routine to age well for the years ahead? More information at cocovia.com. If people with schizophrenia don't get adequate treatment or support, they find it difficult to cope. Have we abandoned the mentally ill? What should a caring society do for those who can't take care of themselves? Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, professor and Constance and Stephen Lieber Chair in Psychiatry at Columbia University's Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. His most recent book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention. Dr. Lieberman, continuing that conversation about how we have failed families and people with mental illness, it seems like whenever there is a tragedy, whenever there is a violent act, we hear from the politicians, oh, it's a mental health problem. It's, it's mental illness, and that's how we should solve it. But then they never do. They never put the money into it. And I just want to get one thing clear, that a lot of the violence that has occurred over the last several decades is directed at patients with schizophrenia rather than from patients with schizophrenia. Yes, there are sometimes terrible acts, but they are most often the victims. Well, you're touching on a nerve uh, for the, uh, of the advocacy community, mental health advocacy community, because they really uh, are offended when uh, you know, so there's some mass violent incident and uh, the politicians and pundits say it's a mental health problem. Um, and they will say, which is true, 
at, if you take all violent crime in the United States, only 4% of it involves people, I mean, as perpetrators, about uh, a level of most of it is, you know, gang violence, mobs, greed, robbery, things of that sort. But if you look at mass violence, and, and, and people who are mentally ill are, as you point out, very susceptible victims of this kind of crime. Um, however, if you look at mass violence, which is defined as three or more people, generally strangers, no discernible motivation necessarily, um, there's an overrepresentation of people with mental illness, almost predominantly schizophrenia, and almost always untreated. And the rate of perpetrators is 30 to 40 percent. So the mass violent incidents that occur and they have three categories of perpetrators. They have uh, ideological zealots, they have disaffected loners, and they have untreated people with mental illness who are being impelled by their symptoms to do these things. And the reality is, is that uh, this could be stopped if people would be treated, uh, but the problem is we run into another policy or legislative issue that got it wrong, which is that if somebody is ill, they don't think they're ill, which is often the case because the organ that makes these decisions about whether you're sick or not is the brain, and in this case, the brain is the organ that's affected. They don't think they're ill. They don't think they need treatment, and treatment can't be imposed over objection unless there's signs that they're imminently dangerous to self or others. And that can be hard to pick up. Well, it's... It's it's basically waiting till after something happens. I mean, you, people are not coming in saying, I'm going to kill somebody. You have to make inferences. Uh, but the law was changed in 1970 from what it used to be. There was a principle called parents patriae, which meant that if citizens of the country were not able to care for themselves or exercise best judgments, that the government, the state, could act as their parent. However, the problem was that there was a lot of gaslighting that was going on where people would try and uh, promulgate stories to get their relative institutionals. This was changed in 1970 to imminent danger. And as a result, uh, people who are above the age of 18, even if they're wholly dependent on their families financially and every other way, but won't accept treatment, um, it can't be imposed on them. And a very small percentage of them can turn violent. Dr. Lieberman, let's talk about treatment, if we can, please. Uh, you you describe um, a five-pronged approach to treatment in malady of the mind. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to tell us what those five prongs are and why each of them is important. Well, uh, I can even boil it down to the three essential treatments. Um so one is medication. Medication is like insulin for diabetes, and it has to be administered in a judicious way, meaning the right medication at the right dose in a tolerable fashion. Um, the second is psychosocial services. It's disease management. There needs to be more than just a prescription and it needs to be attentive to how to put the person's life back together, which means cognitive remediation, enabling person to relearn social skills if necessary, 
to help them get back into their educational flow or back into a job prospect. And uh, someone to act as a case manager and if they don't have a family member. One of the things that's happened in our country is that families dissociate themselves from a, a person who develops schizophrenia for a variety of reasons, and they do become wards of the state. So these treatments need to incorporate that. But the third thing is, and this is really interesting, and this is depicted in a number of ways, including in uh, Sylvain Nassel's great book, uh, A Beautiful Mind, nothing is more important than an individual who's impaired with this illness having a consistent, supported, significant other that they can rely on and develop trust in. And there's numerous examples of uh, this. Um, John Nash is one of them. Uh, Ellen Sachs, in her book, Shatter Cannot Hold, describes her husband, Will. And uh, in an afterword that's just being added to the paperback edition to my book, uh, I have a nice segment about Fred and Penny Freeze, a uh, remarkable individual um, who, uh, if not for her, uh, would have probably languished either on the streets or in the backwards of some mental hospital. So medication, psychosocial services, and uh, a significant other that can be consistently relied upon. Dr. Lieberman, you talk about medications, and I certainly remember watching patients on phenothiazines, the earliest class of antipsychotic drugs, thorazine, chlorpromazine, haldol, haloperidol, and they had a lot of side effects, and a lot of patients were jerking and had something called tardive dyskinesia, and then along came the atypicals, uh, Abilify being just one example, Zyprexa being another, and I think a lot of your colleagues thought, oh, they don't have any side effects. Well, they too have side effects, and I am fascinated with what you wrote about a drug called clozapine. Because early in the development of clozapine, we got messages from people who said that drug changed our relative, our child's life. And people contacted us and said, clozapine, it's amazing. And yet clozapine has sort of disappeared. Yes, it has some potential problems, some blood problems that can be monitored. Why do you think clozapine hasn't gotten the respect that I think it deserves. It's embarrassing. The answer is embarrassing and, and shameful. Clozapine is um, a unique... So the antipsychotic drugs overall have more in common, and they do differences. And most of the differences have to do with side effects, not efficacy. Clozapine is the exception. It's been proven categorically that it is uh, a superior antipsychotic efficacy in individuals who have proven not to be sufficiently responsive to other medicines. But as you point out, it also has some uh, side effects that are truly uh, problematic, uh, a blood dysgrasia, um, and granulocytosis, potential for myocarditis, uh, and uh, as a result, people have to have blood tests done on a regular basis to monitor their white blood count. That's no excuse, though. It's used vastly less than it should be. 
And the only thing that uh, reason that it isn't used more is either patients aren't sufficiently informed as to what the benefits of it are, or doctors just find it to be too much of a hassle, too much of a risk. And that simply is unacceptable because far less people are getting it than really should be receiving it. Dr. Lieberman, I'd also like to ask you about prevention, because you do suggest in Malady of the Mind that prevention is possible and certainly would be desirable. Can you describe for us, please, how we would go about preventing schizophrenia? Do we have a good enough idea of who requires intervention? Yes, yes. Carrie, I'd love to answer that, but I want to go back to the point that Joe was making just quickly because I, I, I wanted to uh, uh, make this clear also. Every medication for every disease uh, goes through a process of refinement. When you look at cancer, the early treatments for cancer, the chemotherapies, literally were true, uh, gave, gave truth to the notion that the treatment was worse than the illness. And when you look at some of the early surgical procedures that were done for uh, uh, um, cancer, breast cancer, mastectomies at Johns Hopkins uh, that were deforming of people. So there's an overshoot that often occurs when prototypes and treatments occur, and then they get refined back to uh, ones that are more tolerable, possibly more effective. And that's what's happened with antipsychotic drugs. And with antipsychotic drugs, there are so many of them now, there's like 30 that are commercially available. It's a matter of finding one that is effective and is tolerable and working with adjusting the dosage, the minimum tolerated, minimum effective dose. So um, it requires some work, but I don't buy it when people say, I can't take it, I'm allergic to it. That's absolutely unwarranted. Now, in terms of prevention, there's three categories by which prevention can be defined. The best is primary prevention, meaning, oh, somebody has a gene for cystic fibrosis or for um, Huntington's disease, let's do some gene editing and remove that and prevent the onset. Um, then there's secondary prevention. Secondary prevention is when somebody begins to show symptoms of the illness, but a treatment is introduced which prevents its onset or its progression. And in the world of Alzheimer's disease or neurodegenerative diseases, uh, we call those treatments disease-modifying treatments. So for Alzheimer's disease, we have treatments like uh, Aricept or Namenda, uh, but these are symptom-improving. They don't change the course of the illness's downward progression. What I'm trying to uh, convince people of in the book is that with schizophrenia, we have within our powers the ability to implement secondary prevention, meaning uh, when people enter the age of risk, if there is sufficient manifestations in their behavior, in their history, perhaps their family history, uh, that this could be the early warning signs, the beginning of the onset of schizophrenia, that intervention then can interdict the illness, prevent possibly the full-blown onset in terms of the syndromal diagnosis, um, and then if it's sustained, meaning the suppression of symptoms, the uh, remission of the uh, onset of the illness, 
they can prevent any recurrence over the course of the lifetime and lead a life as if they never would have had it. Um, that's an experiment that hasn't been definitively uh, uh, conducted and proven. Uh, it is my, based on my experience with treating uh, patients at the early stages of the illness, it is a not just a plausible hypothesis, but uh, it's a likely uh, uh, outcome of this kind of hands-on, right from the start, providing disease management um, that will halt the illness before it even begins. Dr. Lieberman, you've been consulted on several high-profile cases involving mental illness and violence. Could you share one such story with us and tell us what lessons can be learned from these examples? I, over the course of my career, have been asked periodically to consult on some terrible mass violence cases. Uh, James Holmes and the Batman case in Colorado. Wendell Williamson, a law student at UNC. Um, but the one that I wanted to mention is Jared Loeffner, who was a young man uh, who uh, shot the congresswoman, Gabrielle Giffords. Fortunately, didn't kill her, but impaired her for life. So Jared Loeffner was 18 years old, and he was in high school, and then he started getting weird. He's using recreational drugs, and he then attends a community college for several months where he's acting strange and the students and the classmates there are making jokes about him or shunning him um, and they complain to the administration and they suspend him from school and he is throughout having intensifying symptoms of schizophrenia, delusions, hallucinations, disorganized thought, bizarre behavior. Then he at some point uh, in Arizona, it's uh, relatively easy to acquire firearms, purchase guns, ammunition, and then he attends a rally that uh, Congresswoman Giffords is held in a shopping center for her constituents. And he goes to the front of the uh, assemblage and he starts firing. It hits her in the head and kills six people, injuring 15 others. Uh, he is arrested goes to jail. I'm asked to consult on the case. Why? Because the prosecution, the Justice Department, who contacted me, um, they wanted to be to testify that he should be forcibly medicated uh, while he was in custody. And when I heard this, I said, well, that makes sense to me because you don't want to leave somebody symptomatic if they can be treated. And then I realized that the reason they wanted him to be treated was so that he would be capable of standing trial and they could get the death penalty. So, uh, but the point that I want to make, not that, that he had been a mentally disturbed person and potentially taking time bomb, hiding in plain sight for years. And he was in his classroom with other students and teachers and Nothing was done to help him other than to suspend him. Um, if somebody had a seizure or if somebody started choking or if somebody fainted or screaming in pain, everyone would rally around them. They would call 911, try and get him help. But for this kind of bizarre behavior, uh, he was shunned uh, and didn't understand. So uh, the idea of 
see something, say something, do something, applies, even if it's awkward. And uh, this is kind of a, a, uh, a dramatic example of the fact that um, we have to be attentive to changes in people's mental functioning, their behavior, uh, particularly at periods in life that are the periods that are at greatest risk. Um, and not being helicopter parents or nosy friends or individuals, uh, say something or, 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 or try and encourage a person to seek help or get help if there is something going wrong before it goes too far. And all of this is feasible to do, and it's not high-tech, it's not rocket science, it's not usually expensive. It really revolves the social and political will to do it. And the last thing I'll say is that to not... Uh, to not accept the more proactive and optimistic uh, uh, premise that I'm advancing, to my mind of thinking, is discriminatory and perpetuates what's a civil rights violation by denying a large constituency of the population uh, the right to treatment that does exist but isn't being provided. Dr. Lieberman, how do we begin to create safe places for those people with mental illness or schizophrenia in particular so they don't end up homeless and in prisons and can follow the positive path that you have described. The infrastructure for treating people with serious mental illness like schizophrenia um, just doesn't exist. Uh, and the workforce that would be uh, required to uh, provide the services within this workforce doesn't exist. Even in the best institutions in the country, uh, which one of, one of which is mine. So there needs to be a reckoning at either the state or the federal level that they're going to take mental illness seriously. And if they do, then you have to approach it in two ways. One is put in place the necessary preventative measures that will interdict the illness at the early stages so it never progresses to a state of chronic disability and requiring you know, very intensive support. And then secondly, for the people who have already progressed and are advanced stages of the illness, we will need residential facilities. We'll need services, both medication management, but also support services uh, to enable them to uh, lead at least reasonable lives and recover to the extent that they can. And they can't, they'll never be the same as they would have been if they didn't have it. But we can provide support for them. And I have it. I have patients who I've been treating for 30 years who were the, in the backwards of hospitals, got out because of clozapine, and their families have taken an active role in cobbling together these um, coordinated specialty care services. So this is not a matter of a scientific breakthrough being be required to discover the cure for ALS or, or pancreatic cancer. This is something of understanding what needs to be done and providing the resources to do it. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you, Joe and Cherry. A great program, and it's great to be back and uh, discussing such a good topic with you.
You've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman. He's professor of psychiatry and holds the Constance and Stephen Lieber Chair at Columbia University in the Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. His research has advanced the treatment of mental illness and led to the therapeutic strategy of early detection and intervention for schizophrenia. His most recent book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with the People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,373. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. This week's podcast has some additional information on the issue of violence and the mentally ill. Dr. Lieberman has consulted on some high-profile cases, including the man who shot Gabby Giffords and several other people. This story is powerful. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you can also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.